take a man even though you walk alone by court approval once the road is known let come who will but if they all turn home the ghost still awaits you go on alone follow your dream though it lead to worlds unknown life's but a shadow once our dreams have flown what if men cry your dream is not our own your soul knows the Go on alone Give life your heart Bless everything that's grown Fear not the loving All this world's your own Make rich the soil But once the seed is sown Seek freedom, don't linger, go on alone. Walk like a man, even though you walk alone. Why court approval, once the road is known? Let come who will, but if they Those beautiful singers, thank you. The guitar cut out and they kept singing, and then when the guitar came back in, they were still on pitch. It was wonderful. Well, our topic this morning is my journey to finding happiness, and I am joined this morning by Nayaswani. Nayaswami Pranaba, Nayaswami Daiva, and Nayaswami Diksha. And I am Nayaswami Nirmala. And that is a mouthful to say that. Well, my story can be divided into two parts. Searching for Ananda and Ananda. It's a story of very high contrast And I'll give you a hint as to where this is going. Before Ananda, I was not happy. (laughs) I remember my dad telling me that when I was born, the doctors handed me to my father, and then they gave me a shot. And it must have really hurt, because my dad said that I looked up at him like, Dad, 
what am I doing here? What have I gotten myself into? And that pretty much was the theme of my whole childhood. I was wondering who I was, why I existed, what was this place, who are all these people? And so when I was three years old, I ran away from home. Or I tried to run away from home. My parents scooped me up and they asked me, why did you try to run away? And I remember very seriously answering them and saying, I'm looking for peace and quiet. (laughs) And I lived in the most remote countryside you can imagine. It was just woods and cornfields all around. But my neighborhood did have one distinguishing characteristic, which I'll tell you, but the the point of that is that the turmoil was inside, and I didn't know to look for peace and quiet inside. Like Swami says in the festival, where can I find that source of power, of peace? Seek it in the farthest depths of being in your own self. Well, as I say, my neighborhood was very quiet, and its distinguishing feature was that it had a very large cemetery. (laughs) And I didn't get to be a yogi meditating in the crematory grounds on death and life, but I did get to ride my bicycle there. (laughs) And I got to go deep into these thoughts of of why we are born and, and what the purpose is. What are we struggling for? What are we striving for? My spiritual crisis got worse. The older I got, the more I learned about the world, the more discouraged I got. I studied history and I... I studied the wars, and I understood that humanity had imposed so much misery on itself. It just seemed insane. All these wars seemed so insane. And then what was even more poignant to me is I learned about all these environmental issues that are plaguing our planet. And the extinction of animals just through human greed and negligence, the deforestation of the planet, the pollution of the air and the water, the devastation that we have wreaked on the oceans and our planet as a whole. It just weighed on my little soul and I longed to be able to help to change the world for the better. I really struggled, and I was very depressed. I didn't know what to do. 
nobody around me had any ideas of what to do or how to change anything, or they didn't care. And so I didn't know what to do with all this mental anguish that I had. And so I did the only thing I could think of. I wrote existential poetry. <laughs> now, Gyan Dev very kindly read that beautiful poem that he wrote. I promise I will not read any of my poetry for you today. Yogananda said that God doesn't come to most people because he knows that they would just want to argue with him. And I was definitely arguing. And so in this cheery, buoyant frame of consciousness, I graduated from high school and I went out on my own and I started college. And like Parvati, I have emblazoned in my mind the before and after picture of myself. And my before picture is my college photo ID. And you just cannot imagine a more tortured soul. <laughs> it just was the quintessential existentialist. And then fast forward five years, and I was living at Ananda. Well, actually, that five years is the really juicy part of the story. <laughs> because Divine Mother just laid out all these different options for me. So many paths that I could take that would just swallow me up for this entire incarnation, many, maybe many incarnations. And when I look back on it, I can't really believe that it was only a five-year period that she was able to stuff so many experiences and options and tantalizing little tidbits out in front of me in that short amount of time. But by the grace of God and the skin of my teeth, I came to Ananda. So fast forward five years from that college photo ID, and I was spending my first Christmas at Ananda. And I decided to help cook the Christmas banquet with the whole crew of other people. And somebody took a photo of the kitchen crew that day. You couldn't even tell that it was the same person. It was so full of joy, so full of gratitude to be a part of Ananda. I had stumbled onto one of the most important keys to finding happiness, to the art of living, and that is to serve something greater than yourself. We'll just never, ever, ever be happy unless we stop thinking about what I think and what I want and what I feel and serve something larger. 
serve something greater. And forget about yourself in that joy of giving service. I remember, too, those early days of drinking in the teachings. All my issues that had plagued me so deeply for so long, I read about reincarnation and karma and all these liberating thoughts that were just like a spiritual balm to my soul. It helped me so much. And I had wanted to change the world for the better, to help do something. And being at Ananda, I felt like, yes, we can change the world. We are changing the world. Because our spiritual practices, our love for God, our desire to work to live cooperatively, are the things that will change the world. Yogananda said that the person who can reform himself can reform the world. And so I was very, very grateful to be at Ananda. I wanted to reiterate something that Parvati said yesterday. I came later than she did. Many people were already here and living here. I came in 1975. And it was, shall we say, rustic. Um, I remember that I worked for some years for Ananda Construction making stained glass windows. We had our, our workshops down by the entrance of Ananda. They're all, all those buildings are gone now, fortunately. But uh, there was a spring box there where I got my water. And I would carry my water from there to where I lived in Hiranyaloka, which is across the road from uh, the Living Wisdom Center. And I used to say, I didn't have running water, I had walking water. (laughs) And I remember walking home with these giant jugs of water singing. I was so happy. It wasn't a sacrifice at all. It was a privilege. It's a privilege to be part of this. Sometimes people ask me, so what did your parents think about you moving to this strange place? And my parents came and visited me. They saw what, where I was living. They never said a word. They saw my face. They were thrilled. Finally, this little girl had found some modicum of happiness. It wasn't easy to change. You know, those existential roots ran really deep. And I remember once Swamiji taking me by the shoulders (laughs) and looking me deeply into the eyes And he said something we've been talking about this week. He said, Nirmala, even-minded and cheerful. (laughs) He repeated it. 
it's like he was saying, get this through your concrete skull. You've got to get this concept. I remember another time um, some years later, in fact, it was Spiritual Renewal Week, and we didn't have the amphitheater. We just had the um, the Expanding Light dining room was almost finished, and we had the Indian banquet just outside of there. And I was in charge of decorating for that evening, and it was not going well. There was too much to do and not enough time, and I was getting a little frantic. And I remember one of my guru bhais walking by, shaking his head, and saying to me, more Kriyas. Just, you just got to do more Kriyas. And I thought, oh, God, it's really showing, isn't it? Yeah. Just, But I remember, too, Swami just answering our question about do we, how do we know that we're even advancing spiritually or making any progress at all? It just feels like we're stuck sometimes or going backwards or we don't know where, we're, where we are, what our spiritual gravity is. And Swami was very clear. He just said, you can't know. It's impossible to know. And that's because the spiritual victories and the successes of this world don't really have much to do with each other. It's not as though you can tell, oh, I got a good job, I must be advancing spiritually. It's not like that. Sometimes the worst spiritual disasters can be just the right thing to help you to change and grow spiritually in a way that nothing else could have given you. And sometimes great success can be spiritual death. So you just never know. But what Swami was saying then was that if you're still on the path and you're still trying and you haven't given up, you are making progress. So I found that very encouraging. I will um, just end with another little story. I don't want to take too long here. Um, Swamiji, one day, I was working for him at the time, and I came into work and he said, So, how was your meditation this morning? And some people might enjoy that. Oh, good, Swami's going to talk to me about my meditation. For me, it was like, oh, no. How do I say, well, I didn't realize God again today. <laughs> so I tried to kind of make light of it, and I said, well, I sat for an hour and a half this morning, and I didn't move a muscle in my legs. <laughs> even though I moved everything else. <laughs> but, and I thought this was kind of funny, and he looked at me very seriously, and he said, that's good. That's very, very good. I remember another time him saying, God made us, God made the pitfalls 
of this world, all the temptations, all the troubles. God is not surprised when we fall into the pitfalls. He made them. He made us. It's only by His grace that we can escape those pitfalls. It's only by His grace that we can merge back into Him. The only way we can do that is, someone said it earlier this week, we have to love God and love all as God. That's the only way that we'll find it. And also, it helps to just detach from this self. You know, the Bhagavad Gita is very clear about saying, relinquish all delusions of personal doership. God alone is the doer. And that's that's a hard concept to get, to realize. We can say it and we can understand it to a certain point, but to realize that, because it feels like it's my stomach that's upset. It's my head that hurts. It's me that has to pay the bills and it has to do all these things. But we have to realize that truly it is God who is doing all these things. And the more that we give it to him, the more joy we will feel. I'll just close with a quote from Swami Sri Yukteswar that I love very much. And it's the answer to that burning question that I had as a child, which was, who am I? Sri Yukteswar says, you are a mere idea, a mere idea, resting on a fragment of spiritual light. That is your reality. You are a mere idea resting on a fragment of spiritual light. God bless you. Good morning. Thank you, Nirmala. That was beautiful. Does it ever occur to anybody else that this feels a little like the story of Brigadoon? (laughs) Once every hundred years, this little idyllic place appears out of nowhere and is available for a very brief moment before it disappears for another hundred years. Um, Devarshi, Nayaswami Devarshi was speaking of the forest where the sages and the ashrams all reside, where all the stories begin. And perhaps that's maybe more apt, except I think every culture recognizes the existence of that realm and has lore around it. This week I've been, I've been on the path consciously, deliberately connected with Yogananda for over 30 years now. And each year I've come to Spiritual Renewal Week, I thought, God, it could never get better than this. And then I come the next year. And it is and it does. I found it amusing that the topic I was given this week, was, or this year, was um, to speak on my path to happiness 
because I have a peculiar nature in that I'm just not that interested in the details of life, including my own. And to have to speak on um, my path is, uh, I thought, uh, perplexing. But then I realized that one of the themes of my path to happiness has been I never have a clue on how it really works. <laughs> and I've heard that theme echoed, Nirmala just echoed it, uh, we've heard it several other times, Anandi mentioned it earlier, it's really hard to tell what's going forward and what's going backward. <clears throat> so I thought I'd just give it a shot. I've stopped using notes um, for talks, uh, typically, um, because I find that there's more power in the inspiration, but as I was preparing this time, I heard Master and Swamiji say, take notes. <laughs> A saint said that pain is the measure of our distance from God. And if all of life is pointed toward avoiding pain and finding happiness, our measure of happiness must indeed be the metric for our proximity, our closeness, our awareness of God's presence. I found growing up that I was good at everything, Um, there was nothing. I found that everything basically is the same. If you put attention, combine it with receptivity and perseverance, there's nothing that we can't do. Um, Given, one one friend said of Ananda, given enough time and money, we can do anything. We can do anything. And then we find, if we are fortunate, that there's virtually nothing worth doing. And such was my predicament. I ended up going to college, um, thinking that perhaps in the midst of um, expanding understanding, I would get expanding awareness. And in the second year of college, I was so desperate. It was a good college and great people. It was Iowa State University. And I was doing fine in it. I was in a pre-med program, and I loved I was a lab rat. In fact, my talk could be uh, from lab rat to liberation if you wanted. Um, I loved the fact that life had rules, the fact that, that you could do experiments. This path was made for me because um, it's the science of religion. You know, Yogananda said, the laboratory of your own life is where you try out the things that I say. And it really is irrelevant if it works for somebody else and doesn't work for you. You have to prove it in the laboratory of your own life. Well, I was so desperate in year two um, because all people were after was intellectual understanding and a job and etc., that I finally thought, aha, I will take an advanced course in the psychology of motivation. It's the only thing I never completed, and it's the honest <laughs> to God's truth. <laughs> um, various processes took me <clears throat> um, ultimately finally to California from the Midwest. And um, in the course of time, um, somebody gave me the autobiography of a yogi. I had, I had spent, you know, the only value of these, of these stories is if they touch a chord and reinforce for each one of us a sense of the possibility of our own lives for increasing our happiness and how to navigate through. I received the autobiography of a yogi. I recall opening it. And I'd been, you know, I'd read all the mystical literature. I'd read Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda. In fact, I'd even met him at one time. Um, I'd done, you know, I'd read um, Victor Frankl and all kinds of things. I'd buddied up. I'd kind of um, 
magnetically allowed myself to be drawn into the sphere of anybody who I could find that seemed to have wholeness. And each time that happened, um, I would find that they had it within a certain um, sphere of influence. But outside that sphere, it dissolved, and I thought, that's not it. And when I read the autobiography of a yogi, I remember thinking, oh my God, what the heck is this? But whatever it is, it's it. I knew that there inside that was the joy, was the truth, was the completeness, because no matter what happened, there was that underlying vibration. In fact, when Swami Kriyananda was asked by Paramahansa Yogananda, how did you like my book? How did you like my autobiography? Swamiji responded, he said, it was wonderful, sir. And he said, that's because I put my vibration in it. The vibration of God, the vibration of joy, the vibration of union, of yoga. In the course of time after reading it, I started um, taking the SRF lessons and practicing them on my own. And um, it was a good time. It was a good and worthy challenge. I remember um, doing the energization exercises day after day, week after week, looking, practicing, looking, (laughs) trying to understand what the little drawings were and reading the description. And um, it's one of the things that's made me unendingly grateful for satsang and ananda. In the, in, in the course of time, I was told that there was a... Um, I became a disciple through SRF, and I was told that there was a uh, disciple of Yogananda, a living disciple of Yogananda going to give a talk. And I thought, oh, oh great. This, this orange-robed Swami who's so imbued with the power and presence of God is going to come and I'm going to be edified. And I went to, I went to Sacramento and I went, I was living in Auburn and I went there and I went into the Red Lion Inn, into this conference room and I walked in and sat down and I was earth tone. I was really, you know, somebody spoke of, you know, being environmental and doing all the right things outwardly. I was doing all those things, and I walked in, and everybody was pastel. I think it was during the um, lavender ray days. <laughs> and then they started, um, they, they did a prayer together repetitively, and then they did responsively, and then they did uh, chanting, and everybody was doing the same thing and saying the same thing and wearing the same clothes, and I thought, this is really weird. And then out walked Swami Kriyananda in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and he spent the next hour and a half talking about Hawaii. And I walked out of there really bewildered. I thought, what in God's name is this? Whatever it is. I'm going to try and come back to that Hawaiian shirt a little later. In the course of time, um, I ended up picking up the path. I had continued to come to Nevada City. We were living in Auburn. Erica was born in Auburn, and I kept trying to move the family up to Nevada City for whatever reason, I don't know. But every time I would go, I'd go to a vegetarian restaurant, and they kept trying to foist a book on me because it was the time when they would hand out free the path to everybody at the checkout counter. And I thought... I'd say, no, thank you. I just wanted a meal. No, thank you. Finally, after about the fifth time, I went, oh, for God's sake, okay. So at least I can say I've got it already. <laughs> and I was in an existential funk sometime after that, and I, I um, just grabbed a book off the shelf. 
just anything to distract my mind. I was really spinning. And it happened to be the path, and I opened it, and I started reading. And I went, oh my God, so that's who he is. And I couldn't put it down. I could not put the book down. I read it, I think, in two days, night and day. And um, in the middle of the second day, I called the number at the back of the book and asked, I said, I don't know who you people are, but can I please come visit? And I walked, I came and we had the tour. Erica was, um, I think, several months old at that point. (laughs) I had her on my shoulders and we walked across this meadow and the golden grasses and the blue sunshine and the green trees and the stillness. And I heard her mother talking with the tourist, the the, the person who was touring us, uh, Therese, um, for those who remember her. And uh, they were about I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 feet behind us. And I could hear them talking, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. And I was just absorbed in, this, in the vibration of this sacred place. And then I heard them laugh. And I had never heard that quality of sound before. Laughter typically ha- is tinged with Many emotions, many different flavors, sarcasm or, or tension of various natures. This was pure and completely uncolored. And I remember thinking, any place on this planet that can produce that sound is a place I want to be. I tried to move here. Um, it took about a year to get here. <clears throat> um, in the course of time, I met Swami Kriyananda, was introduced to him, and uh, <clears throat> the introduction went something like this, Padma, if you're here, I thank you deeply. Um, our little family was there at Sunday service, and after Sunday service, Padma came up to us and said, hi, introduced herself and said, we're having a community pool party over at Swami Kriyananda's house. Would you like to come? And we went, Oh, how, how lovely. Thank you for the offer. I was so touched. And Swami walked up at that point, and he had this great, this, his posture, he just walked up, and she introduced us. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm sorry, but the pool party is for community members. <laughs> and my energy just sank straight to my toe chakras. You have them in case you haven't found them yet. And I thought, oh, deep disappointment, but I thought, you know, I can understand. And I just looked up and I said, I can certainly understand that. And he looked at me and said, well, in that case, you should come. (laughs) We finally moved uh, after about a year. And um, I was sincere. I realized that I didn't know where happiness came from, but that I wanted it desperately. And I knew that I did not have the wisdom to guide my life. I knew where my life would go. And it would be absolutely fine on the surface and absolutely a train wreck inside. So I came. And I came with debt. I came at an inconvenient time. I came when it was impossible to be here. The average wage, I was supporting a family. The average wage was somewhere around $2.38 an hour for people working for the community. That was a good job. Um, construction paid $4 an hour, and I never had any training in it, but I thought, well, at least it's twice as much as anybody else is making. What am I going to do? So I started doing construction, um, and it was vivid because it was molecular. 
It was a molecular experience. I detested it. <laughs> I was completely unsuited. Um, the physical, um, rational, visualization, willpower skills that it takes to be a real builder absolutely were absent from my nature. And every single day, I had a choice. I could continue in that and barely survive, or I could leave. And really, that was my only choice. And I thought, well, God has put this in front of me. I'll do it today. And we started every day with a prayer. We started every day. Um, we we went, had noon meditations. I lived in an ashram. We had morning meditations um, that, we, that were obligatory. Um, we started early, but we started with a prayer and an affirmation. Then I would just listen to a Swami talk all day long. Walkmans were in at that point. And um, then we would meditate at noon, and then we would do it again all afternoon. So I survived the days by clinging to this vibration. And I found that um, in the course of time, I got really good as a builder. And what happened on, in addition to that was we not only built 40, 50 hours a week but the community needed to be built as well. So we spent another 20 or 30 hours a week building for our friends and building for the community. So it was a never-ending torture chamber. <laughs> and I found that in the course of time, I still detested it just as much as I had at the beginning. It wasn't volitional. It was molecular. It was just there. And one day, after about three and a half, four years, I was guiding a project. I was the foreman. And... Um, the most amazing thing happened. I, I spent the days also chanting. When I wasn't listening, I would chant inside. I was doing japa. And um, I pulled out my tool belt. I swear to God. I pulled out my tool belt. I clipped it on. I pulled out my hammer. And a chant started by itself. And it didn't just start in my mind or in my heart. It started in every fiber of my being. And it filled me with so much vitality and creativity and freedom and light. It just poured through me. And I finally understood what the masters say about spiritualizing an experience. See, one of the things that we have to understand, and I didn't understand it until that moment, but I went from detesting and, and resisting and having this horrible experience to something that was liberating in that one moment, in that one moment, and it's become a power for the rest of this life and has defined much of the service that I've been able to provide for Master because I said yes in spite of, not because of. And I, I offer you this as a gift if you find yourself, if God presents you with impossible circumstance. Because God is omnipresent, joy is omnipresent, there is no moment, no circumstance, no place where joy isn't equally. And God's job for a sincere devotee, the Master's job, Swamiji's job, is to guide the sincere devotee into those places where we do not yet experience the fullness of Spirit. Because those are the places we're stuck. Those are the conditions on our unalloyed happiness. Those are the places where we're not free. And if we want freedom, if we want light, we have to go there. Now, we can go dragging, kicking, and screaming. We can run away and avoid it. It's, it's there waiting. Or we can step into it and embrace it. We can go into all those places 
where we're absolutely certain light doesn't exist and cooperate with God leaving us there until it's found. In the course of time, you know, I found that uh, God remodeled my life, which is a part of what he needs to do. I'm using builder's terms, but he did. When I came here, he changed everything. Um, took away everything I thought was of value, left me kind of there um, bereft, and then gradually in the course of time and in constant service and in surrender and in absorption into the flow of life that only community can give, you would never go these places by yourself. We can't. There isn't doorways even to go these places by ourselves. But in stepping into the stream of life at Ananda, I found something else being born inside. We need proof that God is there. We need, that's where faith is born. And I remember the moments I was helping build um, the, the Palo Alto community when it first was started. And we needed, for many reasons, we needed a, um, a uh, building inspector who was favorable. I swear to God this is true. And they asked me to be the liaison between the building inspector and Ananda. The building inspector they gave us was the son of a, that Master gave us, was the son of a woman who founded the Phoenix Temple and had been, his life had been saved by Master himself when he was a boy. <laughs> I have others. We don't have time. In the course of time, many, many things happened. And we found that it was hard to tell our attunement here. And for about 10 years, I was, I, we went to Palo Alto, we went to Portland to serve, got put on factory recall, was drawn back here in 1995, spent about 10 years wondering what the heck I was doing with my life and whether I was really in tune, kept wondering if Ananda was going to ask me to leave. <laughs> Daily basis, I would ask my wife, I said, you know, I don't know what we're doing here. I, I, I don't feel it. They finally did ask me to leave in 2004. We were running our own construction company, and they called up, um, Jyotish and Davey called up, and they said, um, would you like to take over the spiritual directorship up in Portland? Out of the blue, would you like to take over the spiritual directorship in Portland? From one day saying, I don't know, I don't feel it, I can't feel the attunement, to would you like to take over? You don't know. The battles we fight, the victories we win, are never the victories we know. The showing up every day, the service, the unending story of being in the flow of self-offering is what leads to increasing happiness. It leads to increasing capacity to feel the presence of God. I want to go back to the Hawaiian shirt. A few years ago, Swami Kriyananda was giving little gifts to the center leaders, just, just tokens of appreciation and friendship. And we were kind of the newbies on the block in terms of, of directorship. And we, Gangamada and I thought, oh, it would be so sweet if something you know, was given. But we, you know, of course, it's, you can't ask for a gift. <laughs> We thought about it, but <laughs> one day a package came, and um, in it was a little string of, of pearls for her wrist, which she loves pearls. And a, pa- a larger package came for me, and I opened it up, and in that package, what do you think was there? Yes. A Hawaiian shirt. God watches us. He's always there. The storyline to joy, to freedom, to God's presence is increasing faith, increasing self-offering, increasing moments of just being present. Brigadoon is here for you now. If you're living in Ananda, you, you go when Brigadoon goes. If you're not, 
for God's sake, move. If you cannot move, if you can't, move to the nearest one. Move to this one. If you can't find one, create one. Because it's not temporal. It's not time and space driven. The second you start a community, you build community. You become part of that moving feast that is this vibration that's so rare on this planet. I'm going to end with just a quick quote from Yogananda from a poem, I Am Here. The devotee is looking for God everywhere, looking for happiness everywhere, and can't find it. And finally, he, he turns within. Um, I hid and sulked, like a hurt child. Within the depths of me, I hid and sulked, and no longer seeking thee. When, lo, unheralded, some unseen hand suddenly snatched away the all-black band that has so blinded me with fold on fold. With only mists of dreams between, someone beside me stood unseen and whispered to me cool and clear, Hello, playmate. I am here. So I'd like to share with you some highlights from my journey to happiness. I was born and raised in Israel uh, in a Jewish conservative family. And I remember as a child how much I enjoyed all the Jewish ceremonies, the holidays, going to the synagogue every weekend. God was a part of my life, and God was my friend. Since I was very young, I knew that in this life, my focus is not going to be changing the world through political through social movements, but changing myself. But I didn't know how to do it. I tried to be good, but I wasn't always successful. I remember as a child once, when I didn't obey my mother, I felt really bad, and I crawled under the kitchen table. I was hoping that at least... I can hide it from God. But as I sat there, I realized, I started laughing, because I realized that I cannot hide anything from God, because God is everywhere. In elementary school, my least favorite class was physical education. (laughs) But one time, the teacher announced in the beginning of the class, that today we're going to practice long-distance running. And I was about 11 years old. And as we were running in big circles around school, I reached a point of exhaustion, and I thought, I can't go on. But somehow, I exerted my willpower, and I was able to continue And I tapped into what we know, the second wind. And I continued running and running and running when everybody else stopped. This was my only day of glory in the physical education class. (laughs) But this was a significant event because I experienced the power behind the physical body. And I got a hint of how to use it. And so since then, I tried to use my willpower 
in my energy more consciously to get better grades in school and to accomplish what I set my mind to do. When I was about 15, in the summer vacation, I went with a group of friends to a kibbutz to volunteer for about two weeks. I loved it. So after I finished high school, I went to live in a kibbutz. But after three months, I came home. I was disappointed. It was a good experience, but it wasn't the community I was looking for. Shortly after I was 18, I met a young woman. She was my age. She just came back from India. She was living there for about five years with her family. And now she was back. She was teaching yoga. So I started taking classes from her. And she inspired me right then to become vegetarian. So the seeds of wanting to live in intentional community and to practice yoga was planted. And so the next eight years I was studying in the university. I kept practicing yoga and I was searching. I tried different spiritual teachings. But it was only in my late 20s when I left Israel to study art in Japan that the question of what is the purpose of life became my main focus. Stepping back from the life I lived helped me to get perspective and to look at the deeper meaning of life. And those years in in Japan was the beginning of untying the knots of self-identity, the attachments, to the family that I loved, to my country, to my religion. And when I realized that the only purpose of life is to know God, I prayed from the depth of my soul to God, show me the way. And I was led to America. I was led to Palo Alto in California. And there, I found Ananda. Asha was the first one to welcome me and to help me embrace this path. But it was when I attended for the first time the purification ceremony in Palo Alto that Swami created. I have such a profound openness of heart that it helped to clear out my doubts and to embrace this path. Reading Swami's autobiography, now called The New Path, helped me to understand what the spiritual path is about and helped me to understand the concept of a guru and helped me and inspired me to read the autobiography of a yogi. When I came to Ananda after for the first time, Ananda Village, in 1990, I recognized it as the community I was seeking, the community of people who want to know God. 
It took me a few years to prepare myself. But finally, in January, before Master's birthday, in 93, I moved to Ananda village. And a month later, I took Korea for the first time. And afterwards, I felt the burden of the world was lifted off my shoulders. I was happy. I found the tools that will help me change. The tools of the path of Kriya Yoga. And when I start living in Ananda village, I immersed myself in the teachings. I did everything I could. Swami Kriyananda was still giving classes and he had a lot of public talks which I was able to attend. But I read his books. I immersed myself in his music. Everything that Swami created fed my soul. Jatish and Devi were my main spiritual guides. And throughout the years, they guided me with infinite patience, with love, with wisdom. And they showed me the way of how to live the spiritual life. I remember one of the first times that I went to counseling with Davy. It was very short. It was in 93. It was when Ananda Sangha still was in the trailer. I came to Davy's office. I sat down and I looked very sad and Davy said to me, What's wrong? And I said, well, there are so many things that I have to change in myself. And Debbie paused, and then she said, you know, all the spiritual life, all of it, is all about house cleaning. (laughs) That was the end of the session. She didn't give me a chance to complain or to whine, but that was a perfect answer for me. The spiritual life is all about house cleaning. And through serving the expanding light, serving the guests, through daily meditation, through introspection, through studying the teachings, that was the process of house cleaning. And so after five years of house cleaning, I was ready to get married. (laughs) And Davy set up the day. It was September 12th, Swami Discipleship Anniversary, 1997, when Gyan and I got married. And this marriage has been a great blessing. A divine friendship walking together on the path, serving, supporting each other to get closer to God. In 2001, when Gyanav and I went to Italy to Ananda Sisi to teach yoga, Swami gave me the name Tiksha. 
And this was a part of my house cleaning, letting go past identities and embracing the spiritual life. Fast forward. In 2009, after Gandhi and I give Sunday service, I felt inspired to make a deeper commitment to Master to serve his work. After a week and a half, I couldn't keep my promise. I felt very disappointed with myself. I thought I disappointed Master. And I went to sleep with a very, very heavy heart. And that night, I had a dream. And in that dream, it was in the early morning, I was standing on the shore of the ocean with my friend Mayatri. We were getting into a small boat. We were about to cross the ocean. The ocean was calm, and we crossed the ocean. And then, at midday, we were about to cross the ocean again. The sun was shining brightly, but the ocean was very agitated. Great waves were crushing into the shore. My tree was ready to go, but I wasn't. I stood behind. I was paralyzed with fear. I was gazing at the ocean, wondering, how are we going to cross this ocean in this tiny little boat? And as I stood there, someone tapped me on my shoulder. And I turned around, and there was a man who motioned me to follow him. I couldn't see his face. I thought we were going to go for a short walk. But it was a long journey. I tried to tell him, I have to go back. My tree is waiting for me. But he didn't pay attention. He just kept walking, and I followed him. I kept repeating, I have to go back. She's waiting for me to cross the ocean. But he didn't respond. He just kept walking, and I followed him. And gradually, the sound of the ocean faded away, and we were walking together through centuries, through incarnations, and different scenes from different lifetimes appeared. Different centuries, different lifetimes. And I noticed that every time there was danger, every time we were around evil people, he held my right hand very firmly. And I was safe. And I was protected. And in a dream, I gradually realized this is not an ordinary guide. This is my divine guide. This is my guru. He's guiding me across the ocean of delusion. And when I realized that, the alarm rang. It was five in the morning. And I woke up. 
As I woke up, it took me a while to realize which reality I was in. The dream was so vivid, it was more real than this reality. And as I woke up, I went to my meditation room. I sat there and I closed my eyes and the dream came back with the brilliant golden light. And with it, there was a flood of unconditional love that just poured through me. And that love remained with me for two weeks and gradually faded away. But during that time, during those weeks, inwardly, and I didn't share it, I was weeping. I was weeping from the overwhelming love that I was experiencing. A love that came when I thought that I disappointed my guru. But the power of that love conveyed to me the eternal bond between the guru and a disciple. It conveyed to me the promise of immortality, the promise of the guru to lead a disciple through no matter how many incarnations across the ocean of delusion. And through many months, I meditated on this dream. And especially on this deep bond, this deep love that exists between the guru and the disciple. And about half a year later, Swami Kriyananda formed the new Naya Swami order. And when the first initiation happened at the Expanding Light Temple, Ganev and I took the vow of final renunciation. And the vow of final renunciation begins with the words, from now on, I embrace as the only purpose of my life the search for God. And when I took that vow, I felt that this whole lifetime I have prepared myself for this day and I was ready. And, And since that day, almost four years, I feel that in subtle ways there is a constant increase of inner freedom, of inner joy. And so as I continue my journey in this path of meditation and of service, I have faith. I have faith that through deep attunement with Master, 
with Swamiji, that they would lead me, that they would lead all of us who are in tune to true joy, to true happiness in God. So I figure I'm the last speaker for the week. I can take as long as I can. <laughs> In the Yoga Sutras, the great sage, the great Rishi Patanjali, introduces a Sanskrit word called Smriti, S-M-R-I-T-I. And he actually has three different approaches to understanding Smriti throughout the Yoga Sutras. And the first one comes pretty much in the first few sutras after... Uh, sort of the defining sutra of, the, of all of the sutras, Yoga's Chitta Vritti Narod, which is yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling. And in a number of sutras after that, he lists the vrittis, the things that uh, are the obstacles to the spiritual devotee. And one of them is Shmriti. Now, we don't often hear that, but Shmriti in this case is memory. And it's the way that we indulge in the past. You know, Swami Kriyananda often talked about that a survey he read about where people were asked what was the most significant or the happiest point in their lives. And many in the survey said their high school prom. And these are people in their 50s and 60s. Well, that's kind of sad and <laughs> disheartening to even realize that would be true. So, but memory, even in that sense of looking to the past, I mean, you've heard a lot of memories, uh, not only today but throughout the week. If they're poised to be something that can be inspiring to ourselves but also to others, then we actually can release that indulgent, that attachment to the memory. The second way that Patanjali emphasizes the word shmiti is being mindful being conscious in the experiences that happen to us. And so that when we're involved in life, which is our given, if we're going to grow, is that we take advantage of what's there around us and we consciously see it as part of the ongoing experience to find our true home. And we may not know that our true home is in God, but I think most people know that they're seeking something more than just the outward part of life through the senses. The third way that Patanjali emphasizes Shmriti is the one that Swami Kriyananda often engaged with us about. And the simplest way to understand that is divine remembrance. Divine remembrance really for us is maybe even understood in a more real sense as self-realization. Because it isn't remembering in terms of so much anything but the realization that we are one with God. Well, this whole stream of Shmiti in these different ways really is the journey that we're all on towards happiness, towards joy, towards ecstatic bliss, to our true home in God. In my life, you can see from these different stories, you know, look at this large gathering we have here. It's such a huge spectrum of the ways that we've lived our lives seeking that happiness. And yet, there are obviously the things that come together and we all feel are similar in a certain way. But in my life, I've always sort of felt I was happy. 
So I don't want to have too much of a difference between others. But I always felt, even as a child, I, I was pretty much happy. I knew there was always more. And so my whole life, even to this day, has really been the adventure. And that's the word I've always used, even as a child through today, of what is next. What does that happiness look like? Because I knew it wasn't to be satisfied. Because I knew that was always going to pass away as an experience. But I always felt that whatever I was doing, what was it that I could explore to do more of? And so it wasn't that I didn't have unhappy moments or even traumatic experiences, but even in those, it felt like I had something as a momentum that was always going to come back to being happy. When I was probably about, I think, seven or eight, um, my brother and I were caught shoplifting. Not a good thing to do, by the way. Uh, But uh, my mother was just horrified that her sons could do this. Bad, bad thing to do. And I remember we were sent to bed early as one of the things that happened as a consequence. And my mother came and prayed with us, really, to wash away this sin. And um, I knew it was bad. I definitely knew it was bad, but it was more the sense of, I didn't know what in context it was bad. You know, I really, I felt, hey, this is something available. I'm going to explore what this means. My brother was an instrument in getting me going with this. Uh, He was a year older and was much more savvy about a lot of other things. Um, But I felt, praying with my mother, I felt, this is a real boon. I mean, I realized I shouldn't do what I had done, no doubt about it. But I felt this really positive effect. Here was my mother at my bedside praying with me. And I felt, what a blessing. I mean, I didn't use that word, but I felt, this is a good thing. This is really a positive experience. When I was around, well, it was in 1967. I was 12 and a half years old. In 1967, some of us remember that. Some of us weren't around. But that was a radical year for the planet. And uh, it was called many things, from flower power year to the year that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, uh, band record came out. Um, but I remember I went into the shop that had just opened up. It was called The Experiment. Um, and I thought, whoa, this is cool. And it was day glow psychedelic posters, you know, and they were playing Sgt. Pepper's songs you know, in the place. And it was just like everyone was milling around. I think it was the first experience of satsang that most people had <laughs> at that time. And the police raided it a number of times because obviously associated with that time was hallucinogenic drugs that were illegal. But I smelled incense for the first time. And it just was so appealing. It was just like something had come into my experience that wasn't normal, but was very normal in terms of the connection. And, of course, when my mother smelled it the first time I lit it at home, that was not a good scene either. (laughs) She, of course, had a very direct association with it, with drugs, which a lot of people did, of course, and still do, probably. But I was always in this motion of what was happiness and I spent 
a lot of time with my friends, I spent a lot of time on my own. And when I was 16, I went off hitchhiking across Canada where I lived by myself. And my parents, my dad drove me to the outskirts of the city we lived in to send me on my way. But that was the life I had. It was like, what is going to open up more of what I was already feeling? And so, uh, you know, the, and it's in a different era compared to now at that time, and I'm not encouraging people going to hitchhike. Um, but then the Canadian government realized uh, that there was a lot of youth that weren't going to be employed, and they decided, well, let's support them in another adventure. They set up all these youth hostels across the country. For 25 cents, you could stay a night. For another 25 cents, you could get a dinner. And they would have volunteers and uh, people working there that would drive you to the outskirts of the city in the morning. So it was like a whole aura around that was very different than what most people associate with hitchhiking. And it exposed me to, of course, a huge world that was different than the one I was in. I remember going to Banff in Alberta, uh, you know, the foothills of the Canadian Rockies, a beautiful, beautiful uh, place. And uh, it was a huge campground that they had set up. So, and I didn't have a tent, but they had these huge sort of like dormitory tents that were sort of like this size, not as high a roof, that people, you know, there were male and female separation. But there were vegetarians. There were people meditating. There were people talking about Krishna. There were people chanting the Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna. And I just thought, wow, <laughs> this is interesting. And I came back and it sort of faded. But then I associated with some new friends, and several of them had started meditating. It wasn't the techniques that Yogananda brought us, um, but a different approach, a very simple technique. And they were vegetarians. And so one time I was with this one close friend, and we were at a coffee shop, and she said to me, sort of out of nowhere, well, what do you think about meditation for you? And I had sort of resisted it in any conversation, um, but out of somewhere, sort of as Anandi said, sort of something, or Peter said, an intrusion into my consciousness came, or maybe it was coming from within. I said, of course, it's the only thing that's going to be important. And I really hadn't consciously created that thought form. It, it really came to me. And a few months later, I got instruction in meditation. I remember sitting there at that meditation. It had a ritual, a ceremony to it. And then I practiced the technique. And I thought, I was sort of in two camps with it. One was, I don't know what the heck this is. I really could not relate to it. And yet another part of me felt like, this is really it. But I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you've had this really dichotomous experience. And so I just went with, I'm going to go with the positive side of it. Again, because my whole momentum in my life was really wanting to seek what was more in life and the adventure of happiness. And I took to it, really, completely. I mean, since that day in 1973, in March, I've never missed a day of twice-a-day meditation. So it includes all those Kriyas as well. But... It just felt like, of course, this is the only way that I'm going to experiment on a deeper level. And every day, I lived with my parents. I was going to university. Um, got my mother to quiet my dad down when I was doing my meditations. And 
And then I went to group meditations. I mean, there was a group meditation once a week in the evenings. I went every week. I went to retreats. I just wanted to be in that experience because I knew it was furthering what I was already wanting to explore. And then when I was 19, I felt, you know, I'm going to take this adventure a little bit further. And I decided I was going to travel around Europe. And the two books I brought with me, this is in the fall of 1974, was A Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe and the Autobiography of Yogi. And I remember arriving in Scotland, that's where I flew into from Montreal in Canada, went into Glasgow, and then a few days later I went to Edinburgh. And I was staying in the youth hostel in Edinburgh and in the evening, and I was starting to read the Autobiography of Yogi. And these other travelers came in, these other young people, they were American young people. One of them looked at me, saw the book, and said, you're not really reading that crap, are you? That stuff is so full of, you know what the word is. Um, And it wasn't until later when I read Swami's Autobiography of the Path, when he relates to getting the autobiography in, in the bookstore, and a friend of his came, and he started talking about all this outward excitement of doing things with his life, and Swami held the autobiography of a yogi close to him. I did the same thing. And it was like it was an imposed upon catalyst that made me just realize this is really the precious gift of this journey. Well, that journey lasted close to ten and a half months. I hitchhiked around everywhere, Europe, and it became a pilgrimage. Not that I had any awareness of what that word meant, or even used it, or any conscious intent at the beginning. But I just basically picked up that I was going to meditate everywhere I went. So cathedrals, you know, people started informing me, yeah, you need to go meditate here, it's a really good space. I went to Denmark where my family had come from, and they started hearing about me and meditating, and they would take me to places, why don't you meditate here? It just became this whole experience. And I also went to Israel. Uh, in uh, the spring of 1975 and um, immediately found out some of my friends that had been over there were in the Sinai Desert which at that time belonged to Israel it had since, has since been returned to Egypt but in the Sinai Peninsula the Gulf of Elat, Elat which is the little finger at the top of the Red Sea and everyone there was meditating we were doing yoga asanas Meditating at evening, we'd get together. That's where I first heard one of Yogananda's chants. In the Sinai Desert. Listen, listen, listen to my heart song. And I just started feeling this connection. But there was a veil uh, in my awareness about Master. Even after, I mean, I bought a hardcover version. I read it probably four or five times. Did not realize there was an organization involved called Self-Realization Fellowship. I mean, it's in the book a thousand times. But it was just like... (laughs) My happiness was not going in that direction for whatever reason. And finally, someone that I'd given the autobiography of Yogi to, because I gave it to a lot of people, she said, you know, you should look into these lessons and and see what's what's available. And so I did. At the same time, I found out about Ananda. 
And then the summer of 1978, I took a 64-hour bus trip out here. Now, I'd read The Path in early 1978, and if you've ever seen an original copy of the hardcover Path, it's good just to see it, and a lot of us here at the community have it. But in the frontispiece uh, photograph, you know, that's where the photograph is opposite the title page. When I saw that photo of Swami Kriyananda, I had complete trust that this spiritual journey was going to go with Ananda and Swami Kriyananda. The, the photo was simply him in his robes, and it's a black and white photograph, and he's got long hair and a mustache and beard, and he's pronouming, and he's looking right to right. And I just felt, this is the experience to further my sense of what I want in life. And that 64 bus trip was the first time I'd really been in this country. I lived 60 miles north of the 49th parallel, but there was no reason to go into North Dakota. Um, but, and when I got to Auburn, the bus connection wasn't there. The bus was late coming to Auburn, and so I had to hitchhike. And I was walking down Highway 49, as you've all driven probably, and I stopped and I looked up, and it sort of stunned me. It said, Master's Barn Lounge. And I thought, Master's everywhere. <laughs> Even in a barn lounge. But then, so I got rides here. And as someone mentioned, uh, Nirmala was saying, at the entrance of now, what is Ananda? It wasn't the entrance then. It was around the corner. And all it was was a short little driveway. And there was an old farmhouse. And there was a fence around the property uh, going along Tallerford Road. And there was a grassy area. And um, Prakash was running the spiritual apprenticeship program. And it was late afternoon that I got here, dropped off. And there were maybe 40 or 50 people on that lawn on Tallerford Road doing energization. And I walked on the property and I said, this is my home. Because I knew it to be it. And I didn't feel physically that this was my home. And I still don't. I think we have many homes at Ananda and I feel equally at home in all of them as much of us, many of us do. But then I, I came a few days early and Prakash very kindly allowed me to be here for a few more days before the program, that he sent me off with Narda, Sage Narda, who passed away, left his body a few years ago up in Seattle, uh, to work on stacking firewood at Swami's dome. Because it was just a dome. It wasn't crystal hermitage at that point. And he was purportedly gone somewhere. And we were stacking, so this is in the middle of July, stacking firewood for the winter. And we were tossing it, so it thumped against you know, the dome. Because we were just speeding. Nobody was there. And suddenly, Swami comes out on the deck. And back then, of course, he had the long hair, beard, and mustache. And he had a super tramp t-shirt on. (laughs) And shorts. And all I could remember was that photograph in the the path. And I went... And he went. Then he said, why are you here? (laughs) But the whole journey for all of us is going to include, of course, the things that are sweet and touching in powerful ways. And we're going to have those tests. But the whole idea that we've all tried to live by is, 
what is it that we always come back to? And that's really the touch of the divine through our human experiences. Uh, the last time I really had a, a, an engaging one-to-one conversation with Swami, I think it was four years ago or so, five years ago. I've had, I mean, he blessed me in other times, but this is where I really wanted to ask him some questions. And I, I had this concern about the outer and inner pulls of my own particular journey. I think it's one that's relevant for all of us. Uh, you know, I've always loved that Ananda has the two theme songs. Basically, go on alone and many hands make a miracle. And I was just asking him for his support, his advice of how we continue to play with that in our lives. Because uh, if we veer too much in one direction or the other, we won't have the balance of really that self-offering at its deepest level. And he just reminded me in a very simple way. He said, you know, what I've always looked at in my own life, he said, is always at the bottom line is retaining peace of mind. And I thought, really, he could have substituted the word happiness, uh, you know, that the bottom line is always coming back to that happiness. not in the the more materialistic or uh, human way, but more happiness as joy or that bliss. And I always thought that, you know, Swami was always going to be there, even when he left his body, to reflect that in all of us. And then all of us will reflect that to others as well. And, you know, I've always hearkened back to the joy logo that Swami came up with. Yeah, I think it was 1978. And it came to a meditation. It was an inspired vision. You know, all know what the logo is? The sweeping up and the thing. It's pretty good. Huh? <laughs> so like wa- riding in water. Yeah. Um, but it took him a while to bring it into manifestation from the vision, the inspiration that he had. But I always, as I said, hearken back to it as a good description of what the journey is about. That the, the sweeping lines that come up, they're sweeping, they're not harsh lines. It's not like an arduous ascent where we're you know, really having to force ourselves to it. There's some will, of course, and volition needed, but there's a sweep to it. There's a sense that there's an energy we put into it is going to help us be guided up. And then we reach the peak, and then we can soar. Then we lift up, with that sense that, wow, the spiritual path really is giving me these experiences. But as we lift up, we realize it's not enough to do it selfishly, to say, I'm going to get what I need for myself and enjoy the benefits. We realized, just as the song Many Hands Make a Miracle points out, that we sweep around and we come around that energy to serve others, to serve really the divine in others. But we feel that, that power of that engagement. And then what happens if you look on that logo? It sweeps even higher up. And then the bird descends, that arrow descends down. And Swami said, when we offer ourselves up, when we open ourselves to that experience and put energy into it, then that grace will descend and give us more of that experience. And then he talked about that 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 bird, that arrow, is also the avatar that comes into our hearts, into our lives, into our whole being, and changes us. And then he ends the description of this joy logo by saying that Paramahansa Yogananda once said, this is the highest prayer. 
Give me, my, give me thyself, Lord, that I may give thee to all. So let's remember that. So for today's sing-along, we were thinking about what Narayan said in his talk about learning a chant that then he, he kept it as he was working in New York and walking everywhere. We thought, let's, uh, let's leave SRW with that in mind. So we'll sing, Give Me a Light to Light My Way on the Journey. Um, and so we're going to divide up and we're going to do it as a round. Um, we'll each lead a section. So we'll just, you know, over there, here, here, and there. Four sections. First we'll do it together. First we'll do it together. Then we'll do it in twos and then we'll do it in fours. Give me a light to light my way. Truth is the light so wise men say. Give me a light to light my way. Truth is the light so wise men So where, where is the subdivision? Just, just sort of in the middle of that. All right? <laughs> okay. okay. 